0: Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Lewis Pacon. Lewis is a presidential historian, speaker, and author of The President is Dead, the extraordinary stories of the presidential deaths, final days, burials, and beyond, and Where the Presidents Were Born, the history and preservation of the presidential birthplaces, He's currently working on a book due next year about Ulysses S. Grant. Lewis, welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you. Thank you very much for having me on. My first question always
1: is, where are you in the world right now? Tell us where home is for you. I am in a little town called Suckasana in New Jersey. Currently in my basement, my basement office.
0: Have you always been based there? How does that affect you as a writer? Is location even
1: important these days as a writer? As long as I've been writing, I've been based in Suckasana so not my whole life, but uh, but the last 20 years I've been here. Since I write mostly, or I mean, actually entirely about presidential history, it's been convenient living in New Jersey because so much presidential history and what I write about takes place on the East Coast. So I'm within driving distance of many of the places that I write about. Uh, so it does help living here in New Jersey. Before we
0: get into process, I usually like to talk about you know, your origin story. So can you walk us through, you know, did you always want to be a writer? Did you always want to be a historical nonfiction writer specifically? How did that all come about? And how did you get to this point?
1: Yeah, it's a pretty interesting story. I, at least it's interesting for me. I did not go to school for writing. I never really had an interest in writing. I never really had an interest in history, to be honest. I would say for me, it started about maybe 12 to 15 years ago. And I mean, I always liked traveling to historic places. And after I had children, I started to go on more road trips. I actually would bring my parents on road trips. And uh, some of the places that we'd see, we'd go to baseball games and stuff for the kids. But some of the places we'd go to see were historic places because that was always kind of a family thing for us. My parents had taken me to Gettysburg and Williamsburg and St. Augustine and places like that. So there was always an interest in historic places. And just, I started to gravitate towards presidential sites. It started out for me with the birthplaces. And I had gone to George Washington's birthplace on one of these road trips. And then another road trip, we found ourselves driving through Ohio. And I noticed that there were seven presidential birthplaces in Ohio. So we went to go see them all. We kind of did like a connect the dots to go see every presidential birthplace. And then after that, we ended up, we were in Kentucky, which was our ultimate destination. We went to Lincoln's birthplace. And these places just really fascinated me because they were so different. They weren't like these uniform sites that you go to see. Some were National Park sites. Some were just signs on the road that Benjamin Harrison was born here in like a quaint little neighborhood. The home is long gone. And when I started, it just, I started to become very interested in presidential birthplaces. and. I started to research a lot on my own and just found that many of them had really fascinating stories, like the Lincoln birthplace. The log cabin that's purported to be the Lincoln birthplace probably has no logs from the actual Lincoln birthplace, but might have some logs from the Jefferson Davis birthplace. And I found almost every presidential birthplace kind of had these weird, quirky stories. And That's when it kind of dawned on me in doing my research just to go see these places because then I started to zero in. I wanted to go see the rest of the presidential birthplaces. And as I'd mentioned, living in New Jersey, a lot of the presidents are born on the East Coast. So I was within kind of driving distance. I mean, for instance, you can go see four outside of Boston that are within like 15 minutes of each other. So it was relatively easy for me to just go around collecting these birthplaces and dig more into it. And what I found that there wasn't much research or there wasn't much written about the presidential birthplace it's kind of a an arcane type of topic and at one point i mean i, I kind of like looked back in retrospect and think that I, when i went to go visit the lincoln birthplace it kind of dawned on me what a cool book this would make just writing about the presidential birthplaces and i just kind of dove in and started writing i hadn't written any books before i hadn't really done any writing any serious writing since since college probably which was Twenty years earlier, and I just found that I loved it. I, I love the research, I love the traveling to the places, and you always find out so much more when you walk in the same places that uh, that events happened. So that was such a critical part of it. And I kind of went about it with that like naivete of just started writing and it kind of blossomed from there. Moving on to
0: process, we'd love to talk about how you write these books. We'd love to focus this episode on writing historical nonfiction using both of your books as examples. Does that sound good? That sounds great. So let's dive right into the early stages. So you mentioned the inception of some of the ideas, how these ideas kind of came to you. What about the first steps of deciding to write the book itself? Where do you begin? I imagine research is a big
1: part of it, but what's the first thing you do? Yeah, so my process has changed over time. Now this is my third book, should be out early next year. So my process has changed since that first kind of flying blind of that first experience of writing where the presidents were born. My process is a lot of of research and reading. I mean, reading is a lot of the research, traveling to the places and going to archives. So much of the archives are digitized now, so I can do a lot of my research at three o'clock in the morning in my pajamas online with newspapers being digitized and historic societies having so much of. Of archives and letters digitized specifically with the presidents there's just uh, almost well as far as the presidential libraries there's so much digitized but even lesser-known presidents like Martin Van Buren his papers are all being digitized now too as well as the the wealth of information available with Google Books where there's so many of these historic books I can find books from the 1800s that are digitized out there now and just so easy to search so a lot of the writing process isn't actually writing. It's researching, it's gathering notes, it's figuring out what the story is. I mean, what do I wanna tell? Because both of my first two books, if you would've asked me what the book would be when I first started researching, it was much different from what the book became. Because just in doing research, I'll find that maybe my original idea, like for instance, in writing uh, The president's Dead, my original idea was to make it more like the birthplace where i'd write about the graves and the places where the presidents died but in doing research i found that the more interesting story is the is the presidents themselves how they lived their final days and touching on their post presidency and how they died and then their how the public commemorated them whether in funerals or massive memorial tombs or the opposite maybe very uh sparsely attended funerals a very local event as opposed to national event, and and nondescript gravestones that kind of look like any other gravestone in a cemetery so it's really an evolution in the writing process from when i first start writing to to when i finally realize what the book is that i want to write and then a lot of times that changes the direction of my research for the
0: president is dead specifically so the best of my knowledge, there are 45 presidents and five living presidents, which leaves 40 presidents who have passed. How did you choose which presidents or all presidents to include in the book? How did you go about highlighting the ones you really wanted to focus on?
1: Well, first, I just need to, to, uh, to recognize the statistical anomaly of New Jersey's only president, Grover Cleveland. So Grover Cleveland was the 22nd president. And then he lost in his reelection campaign. So Benjamin Harrison was the 23rd president. Grover Cleveland was kind of like the Rocky of presidents. He came back, fought again, and then won and became our 24th president. So Donald Trump is our 45th president, but only 44 people have been president. So I always always start off my presentations with that because because I do end up getting into how many presidents were born in a hospital or how many presidents are living versus dead. So there's only been 44 men that have been presidents, Donald Trump is our 45th president. And actually since Grover Cleveland is New Jersey's the only president born in New Jersey, I kind of take special uh interest in him. And I'm also on the board of the Grover Cleveland birthplace. So going back to the next question, which president's to highlight? My first two books, I'm kind of a completist by nature. So there's been a lot of books written about the death of John F Kennedy or even the death of FDR, or the death of George Washington. But there's nothing written about the death of Chester Arthur, or the death of uh, of Calvin Coolidge. So both of my books, I took the approach that I wanted to focus on all of the presidents. In my first book, Where the Presidents Were Born, it's about every presidential birthplace. The President is Dead is about every president. And I kind of let the narrative flow. I don't really decide to I mean, I didn't set out to focus more on John F. Kennedy or on William Henry Harrison, the first president to die. I kind of let the evidence, the historic evidence that I can find, kind of dictate the flow. So there's naturally more written about Abraham Lincoln than there is about John Tyler. But that's because there was less pomp and ceremony for John Tyler than there was for Abraham Lincoln. So both books are about all of the presidents. They're fully inclusive. But I let the, how the public events played out after their death and how the events of their death and, and the events that led up to the death kind of dictate how much emphasis goes into each president.
0: You mentioned research as the first step. Can you walk us through a little
1: bit in detail what the research looks like? So it depends on what I'm writing about. So I mentioned that I was writing about Grant so i can give some insight into the process of writing about grant first i sought out as many books that i could find on grant that were some of them were general maybe general biographies of grant other ones might be more specific to the areas of my focus about grant and basically what i do when i'm i'm taking my process as far as reading my process i'll read a book with a highlighter and with a pen and I will put my notes in my book to start off with. For the most part, that's what I'll do. So I'm highlighting, I'm writing in the margin. And then after reading the book, now I've got a little bit of a better perspective of the salient points that I want to gather from the book or the salient information, as well as I'm reading the book, but I'm also reading the footnotes too. So sometimes I have two bookmarks in the book. One is the book, the other one is the footnotes. Because I'm looking at the... Uh, at the historic evidence that that particular author is using too. And many times, if I find that, for instance, with Grant, they were referring to a book that Julia Grant wrote, because Julia Grant, Grant's widow, wrote a book that came out years later. I might then reference that book to see what other information is in there. And then after reading the book, I've got all of my highlights and all of my notes, a lot of times embedded in the book. I'll go back And then start taking those notes from my handwriting or from the highlights and start putting them down on paper. Same thing when I visit historic sites. I'm going there with with a pen and paper. I kind of like it the old-fashioned way, with a pen and paper. And I'm taking my notes when I'm there. I'm asking questions. Sometimes I'll let them know in advance that I'm coming there and I'd like some time. And other times I like to go as just an observer and see what the experience is for someone that's just going there to see the site and then kind of comparing what's being told to the general public that's just coming into the site, as opposed to maybe what's in the archives, or maybe what's being told to an historic researcher. And sometimes I'll go to the same site multiple times. Again, the advantage of living in New Jersey, sometimes that's an advantage, depending on what I'm writing about. I can go visit sites multiple times and get those different perspectives. Sometimes I'll go as a casual observer and sometimes I'll go as an historic researcher. What I like to do is when I get these notes, a lot of times I'll just start writing from the get-go. So even from the first notes, I'll start like framing out the book right away. And maybe that's not the the most efficient way to go about it, but that's the way that I like to do it. So right away I'll start if I get if I read my first source and I get some salient points that I think are important to the story that I want to tell at that point, I'll start framing them into a book. So maybe at one point, my book is only like 10 pages because that's all the information that I have. But then it'll start increasing over time. And then I'll realize, you know what, maybe this part of the story that I thought was interesting when I first started doing the research, now I'm finding this isn't that important. Or maybe this is too much of a tangential path that I'm going on. And I think that this is something that needs to maybe go into the footnotes or maybe just needs to be sliced out altogether. And I'll just continue that over time just uh, keep, keep layering in new sources and keep writing and editing almost simultaneously.
0: You just walked us through your process. As you are doing your research, you're kind of building the story. I don't think you've mentioned an outline yet. Would you say that your outline, per se, is built as you go? Or would you say in the beginning you do have a written out outline that you are trying to stick to to try to tell all these stories?
1: That's a good question. I do use An outline, but I'm not that strict about it or that dedicated to it. A lot of times I'll let the, I might have an idea for the outline from the get go. I'd say when I get maybe about 25 to 40% into the book, that's when the outline has become more solidified. For instance, with the grant book, as I was writing it, again, I was probably at that 25 to 40% point. I realized it kind of, that's when the structure gelled for me. And that's when I realized the chapter layout that happened to work out pretty nice with 10 chapters and an epilogue. So that's when I kind of realized what the outline was. So it's a little bit unstructured, a little bit maybe backwards. I know some people kind of set their outline from the get-go. And when I was in school, that's what I did. And uh, that's what I was taught to do. I actually went back for my master's in history just a couple of years ago and uh, in writing papers for my master's, that's what I did. I did do the outline first, but this just feels more comfortable for me with writing my books to kind of let the outline come out more organically after I've started my writing and after I've started my research. I mean, I definitely have the general sense of what I want to write about, and maybe even more than general, but it kind of gets more refined over time. So as
0: you're doing your research and you're kind of, uh, as you mentioned, starting to write the story as you're building the research. Would you say that there's a point in which you you do the research on each president? At that point, would you call the research that you've put together a rough draft? What stage would you call that? And what are the steps between that and actually getting it to a place where it's a working draft?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. What I do is that, and I've never really thought about this before, but now that you've asked the question, the answer kind of dawned on me. When I first start I kind of keep two documents simultaneously. One is my book, and the other one is points that I want to include that I haven't included yet. I mean, just for instance, for The President is Dead, there was maybe about 700 footnotes in total that went in there. So that's a lot of sources that I've used. So I'll keep track of the sources that I've gone after already, the sources that I've already included, as well as a litany of the sources that I still have pending to include to review. I keep in the actual book manuscript, a lot of times I'll keep notes embedded in there. So maybe for The President is Dead, there was uh, an excellent book about the funeral train for Franklin Roosevelt, just for instance, just popped into my head. As I'm writing out the Franklin Roosevelt chapter, when I'm getting to the funeral train, I might embed notes. Make sure you check out Robert Clower's book about the presidential funeral train. And that's all embedded into the book. So if someone just picked it up and started reading they kind of see a hybrid of hey this paragraph almost looks good enough to submit and then all of a sudden you're getting my notes embedded in there or there might be a photograph that has a lot of of rich information in that photograph so i might just embed a link to the photograph make sure you check this out this is something that has some good information as well as maybe a photograph that we want to include in the final product at some point i've gone through all my sources and i guess I've gone through the sources, the notes have actually been transformed into text, and I guess for all of my books, at that point, I kind of do a final spell check, and the spell check might take me like an hour to go through, because a lot of times when I'm doing the writing, there are spelling errors in there, and it's kind of, there's portions of it that are unstructured. And in going through that, when all of the notes have been taken out of the manuscript, just from from naturally doing my research and doing that spell check, now I feel like it's transformed from a draft into a manuscript. Not that it's ready to submit by any means to the publisher, but it's kind of made that mental transformation where I think of like a roller coaster. That first part is like clinking and clanking, going up to the peak, and then After, like, the notes are out and the spell check is done and I feel like I've got the structure in there, that's when I start coming down, like, over the hump.
0: We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com writerexperience writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com writerexperience writer experience for your free audiobook.
1: What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favourite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi,
0: I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickr and Myth Network.
1: We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic.
0: So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes, or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. And what does the revision process look like? How many revisions do you do over the course of a full book? And what does that look like? How long does
1: it take? I must literally read the book like close to a hundred times if not more than a hundred times oh wow just one of the telling how many times like how much time i'll spend on this is uh there's a certain uh, a lot of times when i'm working i'm listening to music and there's just certain albums or certain music that almost like just get me to focus so quickly by the time that first song is done for whatever the reason that music has got me focused and there's an album that i have on itunes that for this particular reason it's a u2 album and it just puts me in that zone. It's the Songs of Innocence. And on iTunes, it'll keep track. I don't know if people know iTunes. It'll keep track of how many times you've listened to a song. And at one point, I looked down and realized that I've listened to this first song over 400 times. Uh, I couldn't believe it. And so I will spend a lot of time editing, reading it over and over. And then I will have several layers of editing, even after I'm, I'm convinced this is ready for the publisher. I might step away from it from a couple of weeks because it's difficult when you keep reading your own material. Sometimes I'm I'm flabbergasted when an error is found, even like a simple grammatical error. And I'm like, I've read that sentence a hundred times. How could I not see that? Because it's difficult when you're proofreading your own work. You kind of get blind to the spots. One of the things that I like to do is Microsoft has this great feature where it'll read your Word document back to you. And if I just turn that on, and sit back and not look at the screen and not follow along you'll catch so much more you'll catch if if you've used the same word three times in the same sentence if it's repetitive grammatical errors so that's a great feature that i recommend for any writer also so after i'll sometimes i'll step away from it and i'll maybe work on another project for a couple of weeks and then come back to it and i i kind of see it with slightly fresher eyes I have, I'll, I'll work with a proofreader even before it goes to the final editing process. So, someone else will read it and come back to me with suggestions or errors. And then, after that's all done, and this almost sounds like a pretty quick process, but even this on its own can take months going through from the point that I think it's kind of like ready for the publisher. Like, the funny thing is, is that I'll think I'm 99% done. For like a really long time that's much more than or that's much less than ninety nine percent of the overall time that I've worked on it, but then with the publisher that I've worked on for uh, for the president is dead and that I'm working on with my grant book skyhorse, they've just been terrific because then they'll do a a really in depth really professional editing job where they might find some inconsistencies in there they might they'll Definitely find some some better ways to tighten the text because that's a big part of the editing process too. Is honing down the book. So I mean, in my mind, I might think that five hundred thousand words to write about the deaths of the presidents is great because it's such a fascinating subject. But there's not too many people out there that want to read a half million words about the presidential death. So you do need to kind of figure out where do you want to carve out, where do you want to put it into the footnotes, where can you take these 100 words and maybe tell it better or make it sharper and bring it down to 60 words. So you do need to go through that carving process, that honing process, to get it down to a digestible size. So then after it's gone to the publisher, to the editors, there'll be a whole back and forth process too that'll take some more weeks and even months of getting it ready for printing. And even during that, sometimes Because I've gone from one research uh, project to the next, or because maybe I'm just still, even though the book is done, I'm just still so enamored with the topic, I might still be finding other information that I want to put in the book. So there's kind of, even in the final editing, maybe most of it is trimming the book and correcting it and going through the editing process, but there's still also, hey, I just found this. I want to get this into the book too. So that's part of the process. You mentioned a couple times the publisher,
0: Skyhorse. This may be rewinding a bit, but at what point does the publisher get involved? At this point, are you querying to get your book published? Do you already have a pre-existing relationship? through an agent. Walk us through how you pitch your books. And then I would love to also hear about, if you do query, I've heard that the nonfiction process is the book doesn't have to be done yet. You pitch on a proposal, and then you write the book after the fact. So I would love yeah. to hear your perspective on those.
1: Yeah, I don't, hopefully I can share my experience. And if someone's listening that wants to get into writing nonfiction, maybe they can learn from, I don't want to call them mistakes, but I don't know if I, I know that I don't go about it maybe the most orthodox way. So with actually both of my first two books, Where the President Was Born and The President is Dead, both times I started writing the book because I thought this was a fascinating topic. And especially with my first book, my pre-existing notion, again, going into this as just a first-time author with a real passion for writing and a passion for the topic, but not much knowledge about being an author, my thought was I needed to go to the publisher with the finished product and say, here's my book. It's all ready to go. Do you want to publish it? And what I found is In searching for a publisher for my first book, again, at that point, it was probably like 90% done when I started looking for publishers because I figured, all right, I can keep finishing it as I start this working relationship with a publisher. What I found is many of the publishers are only looking for the idea. And when I started to submit the publishers, they were looking for a summary of the book And maybe one sample chapter, maybe somewhere looking for three sample chapters. But by no means did I need to finish the entire book before starting to submit to publishers. So that was pretty eye-opening for me. Honestly, I kind of took the same approach with my second book, where I ended up writing most of it, if not all of it, before doing this publisher search too. So I'm not saying that I learned much from it. Maybe it was just the way that I feel more comfortable. Writing, because honestly, I did that with my third book too, where that was pretty much done before I started to submit it. But that's not the way that it has to be. If you have an idea, you can definitely, you definitely want to start writing it first. And again, a lot of publishers are going to look for that sample chapter, but you by no means have to have a finished book before you start looking for publishers.
0: Lewis, are you ready for what we call a series of seemingly random questions? (laughs) If you're ready for it, then I'm ready for it. First one, if you could take one president, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which president would you choose which restaurant and
1: why? Oh, man. Not so much for the food aspect, but I just love to sit with Abraham Lincoln. So I will say that I will take Abraham Lincoln to Taco Bell. No, you know what? I'm going to change that to KFC because I love KFC. And Abraham Lincoln's from Kentucky. So I'm going (laughs) to take Abraham Lincoln to KFC. And uh, and that's it. Was there one other piece to the question that I forgot? No, why? Oh, why? See, there you go. It would just be so cool to sit in a booth in one of those red tabletop booths with Abraham Lincoln and just pick his brain. And just he just he's uh, had such a great sense of humor, and it would just be great just to talk with him, just to pal around with Lincoln while eating original and extra crispy Kentucky fried chicken. That's an awesome question. The next question. Of
0: all of the research and the stories that you've told about the presidents, whether their births or their deaths, is there a favorite birth and a favorite death that you could choose from? Maybe for those listeners who haven't checked out your books, to entice them about what the best stories are?
1: Well, I mentioned it before. Really, the birthplaces are really kind of quirky. And just to maybe just give like a one-minute synopsis of why I find birthplaces are so quirky is because... When the president is born there, when baby Herbert Hoover was born in this home in West Branch, Iowa, nobody cared about it. Nobody, I mean, his family cared about it, but nobody cared about the place because nobody knew Herbert Hoover was going to be president 50 years later. So birthplaces are much different from other historic places like Independence Hall or maybe Gettysburg, where people know right away something important happened there. So now you have 50 years later, people start to take interest in the birthplace. By this point, birthplaces have burned down, birthplaces have been remodeled. Because most of the presidential birthplaces are home. Jimmy Carter was the first president born in a hospital. So that's a whole different type of story when you're talking about hospitals. But for the presidents born in homes, homes have been remodeled. They've been relocated. And what I always find most amusing is other people live there. They're still private homes. So some people aren't that thrilled when someone shows up at their door with a camera and they want to come into your home to see where Harry Truman was born. When you're watching TV... (laughs) and you're eating your breakfast, then you maybe don't want to take people on tours of your home. So Abraham Lincoln, for me, and maybe I talk about Abraham Lincoln while we're reading KFC about his birthplace. Abraham Lincoln's birthplace is fascinating because the log cabin that he was born in, the last time anyone really kept track of it was about two or three years after Abraham Lincoln's family left the birthplace home and then moved somewhere else. Even after he was president nobody knew where the birthplace was after he was uh, assassinated nobody knew where this log cabin was and it kind of like strangely appears about 30 years later and it's got this whole weird story to it and i kind of mentioned the ending i won't go into the story but i kind of mentioned the the surprise ending that if you go to see the birthplace now there's almost no chance that any of those logs are from abraham lincoln's birthplace but there's a possibility some of those logs are from the confederate President Jefferson Davis's birthplace, who was also born in Kentucky. Some of those logs might be from Davis's birthplace. So that to me is is a really quirky, strange story. There's other similar stories like that from Washington's birthplace, for Jackson's birthplace, from many of the other presidential birthplaces. So that's one of the most interesting birthplaces that I researched and I wrote about. But one of the most interesting presidential deaths. There's a lot of really interesting presidential deaths, the deaths and then the and then the stories of the graves and and the public ceremonies after the fact. One of the ones that comes to my mind is Warren G. Harding, because Warren G. Harding, it was a very mysterious death. He was sick, but his doctors didn't feel that he was close to death and his death was very sudden. And there was a lot of of mystery right from the get go. I mean, many people know about there's conspiracy theories that maybe he was killed by his wife. He might have been poisoned by his wife. He might have died from other unnatural causes. But what I found fascinating in doing the research is these conspiracy theories didn't start years later. They started from the day after or the day that Warren G. Harding died. Where reporters started to notice inconsistencies in everyone they talked to about who was in the room, what was happening with Warren G. Harding in those moments before he died. So that's one of the most I shouldn't say one of the most, one of the many interesting and intriguing stories about the presidential death.
0: My last question is what is one piece of advice or learning from your career that you'd like to pass along to the writers, whether it be, you know,
1: any writer or
0: historical nonfiction writers?
1: What's worked for me? is writing about a topic that you have a deep passion for for every one of the books that i've wrote or every one of the books that i've other projects that i'm working on now i'm passionate about the topic i'm deeply interested in the topic it's not it's never writing is never a chore for me i'm always extremely enthusiastic about writing and i'll find if i have a half hour break for lunch and I can sit down and write for that half hour. It's just, that's what I love to do. So find a topic that you love, and that passion will just will just come out in the writing, or find a topic that you're deeply interested in. I know I've read about some people that their publishers had mentioned a topic, oh, why don't you go write about, about some topic, and the authors decided to do it. But I couldn't do that. Personally, I couldn't do that. If someone came to me and asked me to write about about the history of European history or some topic related to European history, I don't have a passion for that topic. And I couldn't do it. Other people can, but for me, what works is having that passion, having that interest, having that obsession, and that should be your topic. So there you go. That's one of them. The other one is writing about For me, what's worked, too, is writing about if you're doing the type of writing where going to archives or going to historic places for research is important, then you want to write about a place that you can get to. Again, if I I wanted to write about the history of Pearl Harbor, I can't get to Hawaii that conveniently being in New Jersey. So that would be a more challenging topic for me to write about, writing about the presidential birthplaces. So many are on the East Coast that that became a more accessible topic for me to write about. Well, thank you, Lewis. The
0: President is Dead, the Extraordinary Stories of the Presidential Deaths, Final Days, Burials, and Beyond, and Where the Presidents Were Born, the History and Preservation of the Presidential Birthplaces, are both available now. Please check them out if you haven't already. And his book on Ulysses S. Grant will be released next year. Lewis, anything else you want to plug, whether that's books or upcoming projects, Twitter handle, anything?
1: I'm on Twitter. I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I have my website, com, And uh, that's where you can find out information. I do speaking engagements, many in the New Jersey area, but I've also done some in New York and in Ohio. So if anyone's interested, they can come out and hear me speak. But uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from people. If you have any questions about the presidents or about the writing process, you can contact me through any of those means. Well, thank you, Lewis. We had a lot of fun. We appreciate your insights you and
0: your sure. time. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. This was great. Thank you, Lewis. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at WriterEXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin MacLeod.